This episode contains strong themes that some listeners may find distressing. The historical events in this show touch on the subjects of chronic illness, death, suicide, homophobia, sexual acts, drug use, and some explicit language. The 1980s were important and trying times for Aotearoa. Many look back to this time for the fashion and the music, but it was also a period of bold protest and activism, political reform, economic disasters, and more. You may have learned about some of these events in school. The Springboks Tour, the Rainbow Warrior, Māori Language Act of 1987, all important parts of our history that people should know and reflect on. In this series, you'll learn something that isn't taught in schools, but it should be. A story that should sit alongside all of our most famous events in history, involving a group of brave people that Aotearoa should be immensely proud of. Perhaps it's a testament to how well they did that most don't know their names, but it's time to change that. This is Our Forgotten Epidemic, a six-part story about Aotearoa New Zealand's response to HIV and AIDS, and some of the many brave individuals who changed the course of history. I'm your host, Dr Jason Myers, and I've been honoured to have been a part of the HIV response in Aotearoa for nearly two decades. This is part five, Do We Dare to Hope? In this episode, you're going to learn about the early years of treatment for HIV and AIDS, this time spanning from 1981, when cases first started popping up in America, through to 1996, when the first big medical breakthrough occurred, was unfortunately mired in homophobia and discrimination, both here and abroad. This was also a time when many of the treatment developments were happening overseas, by pharmaceutical companies and governments with far greater resources than our own. This meant that in New Zealand, people with HIV and AIDS, and the medical community treating them, did not have access to what they needed during the most punishing time of the country's epidemic. Dr Rod Ellis Pegler, who you'll remember as one of Auckland's only infectious disease specialists at the time, remembers the attitudes many people held. It's hard for you to believe, probably, that it was becoming a disease of the H's. It was homosexual people had it, haemophiliacs had it. Um, There was a series of H's, okay? The fact that a heterosexual had an H just used to make me laugh. What about the heterosexual, I would say? Yeah, so there was this sort of madness. That's just magical thinking, clearly. And there was a genuine link to Haiti because the Haitians had become involved in the epidemic early. But anyway, it, it all, those were the people who were being labelled. It was a disease of the H's. I mean, it, and Hades and hell began with H's. You may find these connections so ludicrous it's hard to believe, but they were being made, I used to say. It's a virus. Viruses don't know what a gay man looks like, OK? People will then be able to sort of slightly laugh and realise, yes, that's probably right, isn't it? In May 1983, scientists in France and the USA claiming to have identified the virus causing AIDS, published their findings in the academic journal Science. It was announced that a retrovirus, which we know today as human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, was leading to acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, AIDS. 
This discovery put to bed the earlier homophobic and pseudoscientific assumptions about the illness that was claiming the lives of gay men, people who injected drugs, and sex workers. But figuring out what it was didn't mean they knew how to treat it. Here's Warren Lindbergh, who was the director of the New Zealand AIDS Foundation. We were still in the days when we didn't even have a drug. We didn't even know enough about HIV to know what might be possible. So we kind of had a double goal, which was to limit or prevent the spread of HIV in New Zealand and to provide support and care the best we can in New Zealand. The only things that could really be done in these early days were focusing on caring for people with HIV and trying to find ways to stop transmission. Care took many forms, from counselling and support in the community through to hospital level and palliative care. Here's Richard Meech, who you'll remember was the Hawke's Bay infectious disease expert and Eve Van Graffhorst's doctor, talking about what it was like in the early 1980s. This was a death sentence when you told someone they were infected with HIV. So for a couple of years at the start, it was always end-stage presentation with overwhelming opportunistic infections. As you may know, most people who die with HIV do not die from the virus itself, but rather from complications relating to AIDS. These complications are often a result of opportunistic infections, common infections that a person with a healthy immune system may encounter without getting sick, but for someone with a compromised immune system, as is the case for someone living with AIDS, may be deadly. We could manage them, but we were not doing anything about the underlying HIV that was causing the immune suppression. And so, yeah, very clearly people would sit there and have the mindset that AIDS diagnosis is the end. What doctors like Richard Meech were finding was patients were presenting with pneumonia, cancers like Carposi sarcoma, and serious fungal infections. They could perhaps treat these infections, but they knew they were merely treating the symptoms, the underlying cause being the HIV, which was attacking their immune system and for which there was no treatment. Here's Dr. Rod Ellis Pegler again. But in the end, because we were doing nothing about the basic disease process, their immune systems just completely withered away until it was impossible to do things for them. The doctors, and most of their patients, knew that without the ability to deal with the underlying HIV infection, the people they were treating would eventually lose the battle, whether it be two or ten years down the line. Sometimes, this meant having to make extremely difficult decisions. And some of these guys died pretty unpleasantly, really, with multiple tubes in, and having to make decisions about, look, can't go on like this. We can't turn this around. So, in the absence of legal palliation, or whatever they call it, they would die, and we'd help them to die. Well, you just... What we do is we just give people an awful lot of morphine 
that's how you go about it. Uh, and it does relieve pain, no question about it. And if there's only one way, there's only one way you're going. People in medicine are largely there out of a desire to improve and save lives, being rendered ultimately helpless when it came to treatment options in the early years understandably took its toll. The medical community could buy some time for a patient by treating the variety of cancers and infections that a person with AIDS would present with, and as the years progressed, they became better at treating these conditions, and the medicines available expanded. But these improvements weren't enough to save the lives of the millions of people globally who were already living with HIV. Here's Michael Stevens, who you'll remember from the last episode had been confined to bed at the Herne Bay House Hospice as a result of AIDS-related complications. My life was moving between hospital and um, hospice slash respite care. You know, it was a hospice because people did die there. A lot of people went there to die. When I was first admitted, I was so sick, I couldn't walk from my bedroom to the kitchen. I just didn't have the energy. I just could not walk that far. So for me, it was a real exercise of... Uh, my body weight went down to around 50 kgs or something crazy. But yeah, I think I think there was a certain fatalism to it all, too, for those of us who were positive, who we were expecting to die, and sort of... I'm thinking, you know, when would we die? When would we get that, that sick that there would be no turning back? In those days, the goal was simply to stay alive. Anything that extended your lifespan, even if just by a few months, was worthwhile. Because the longer you could stay alive, the more chance you had at being around when better drugs were discovered. And constantly, rumours that science was on the edge of the next big breakthrough resounded. Home remedies and misinformation combined, meaning that all sorts of products were being touted as miracle cures by less than reliable sources. Everything from bleach to vitamin C. Drug trials became increasingly common as different medications were tested in the hope of finding a breakthrough. Alongside the symptoms of their illnesses, this meant people would also have to deal with unpleasant, sometimes quite unusual side effects. Here's Bruce Kilmister, who you'll remember from our previous episodes as one of the founding members of NZAF, recalling the side effects of some of the early trials he and his friends were involved in. I can remember saying, put me on that trial, put me on that trial, because what I'm on now is failing. Some of them were so bad, I can remember one medication, I can't remember the name of it, but it was such an evil thing that um, I couldn't take it by the spoonful we used to have to take it. So I would buy gelatin capsules and I'd take my prescribed dose, fill up these capsules and then take the capsules which I could swallow. But I had to do it quickly because the medication would melt these gelatin capsules within about five to ten minutes. If I then didn't get them down in time I'd start gagging with this horrible, horrible medication. I can't remember its name, but I was so happy when I shifted off that one. It was horrendously repulsive. But again, it was better than the alternative, as they say. The other one that most guys seemed to enjoy or couldn't cope with at all was a tripler with the ephavrins uh, part of it, which of course made people have vivid dreams. I 
eventually quite enjoyed that because you go to sleep and have this amazingly vivid dream and you could wake up and go back to bed and back to sleep and just commence the dream from where you left it off was most unusual but other friends of mine I remember Keith he's since passed away but Keith would tell me that he would be so screwed up in the head that he'd walk downstairs and walk into walls or trip into things it just simply planked him out In order to deal with the side effects, people would be given more drugs, which would cause other side effects, for which, you guessed it, they'd be given more drugs. Here's Michael Stevens. Then the thing with the drugs was you would take the drugs to treat HIV, but you'd also have to take other drugs to deal with the side effects of them. So at one point I was taking, I think, 47 pills a day. Some of them you have to take first thing in the morning on an empty stomach and... You know, wait an hour before you eat, and then you take something straight after you eat, and other things, different times. And yeah. I was on morphine for controlling diarrhea for a long time, not for pain, but it's because nothing else would work. So weight loss, and they called it wasting, and diarrhea was a very common side effect of infection, though, and hard to treat. Yeah, mm-hmm. but so people would often go on codeine or morphine and stop the diarrhea. But that made you really sleepy. Here's Jane Brunning, who you'll remember from the last episode as having acquired HIV while living in Tanzania. I think for, you know, I remember that time, it's a lot of people looked terrible from, from their drugs. And so you could kind of almost pick out someone who had HIV or AIDS because they looked like they did, you know. And there's a definite look. In 1984, millions of people worldwide were living with HIV, and this number was rapidly increasing. Following the discovery of the HIV retrovirus a year before in 1983, some pharmaceutical companies threw everything they had into looking for an effective medication that would work against HIV. The company Burroughs Welcome was already well known for its antiretroviral drugs, One such drug was a pre-existing medication, azidothymidine, known commonly as AZT, which was initially developed as a potential treatment for cancer in the 1960s. AZT was found to not be effective against cancer, but two decades later, researchers found it seemed to show promise against HIV and began the process of trialling it in people. At the time, it could take a drug up to 10 years to be approved, but most people already affected didn't have that long. Following relentless public pressure, the drug trials were fast-tracked. A double-blind, placebo-controlled trial was conducted. 282 patients ill with AIDS took either AZT or a placebo and were originally supposed to be monitored for over 24 months. But after just 16 weeks, the Burroughs Welcome Fund, who owned the patent, called the trials off for ethical reasons. In this short period, one patient had died in the group given AZT, compared to 19 deaths in the placebo trials. Following more immense pressure from the public, Burroughs Welcome agreed to fast-track the release, and in March 1987, the American Food and Drug Administration approved AZT as the first ever medication for AIDS. In 
If you lived in Aotearoa, New Zealand in the 80s, chances are you would be used to being the last in line to receive everything. Movies were released here months later, after the rest of the world had already seen them. Goods, easily accessible elsewhere, could take months and were often expensive. Bands would always visit Australia first and sometimes skip New Zealand altogether. These small annoyances and inconveniences are one of the few downsides to living in such a beautiful, isolated country, and are usually something people can live with in light of the benefits. But what if you were waiting for a new, potentially life-saving medication, and you had no idea when it would become available here? Here's Dr Richard Meech, talking about the difficulties doctors and patients would have in accessing the latest drugs for HIV here in New Zealand. We would often be behind Australia. Aussie had a bigger market and they had a bigger problem and because of all the research that they were doing, they were keeping up with the cutting edge with the United States. And so often drugs would be available in Australia six to 12 months before we would access them here. We had patients going over to Australia and able to access drugs over there that we couldn't put our pen to paper with here. Places like St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney became an invaluable resource for the communities. Bruce Kilmister, with a fashion export business and an apartment in Sydney, was often travelling between Aotearoa and Australia. This put him in a fortunate position when it came to accessing the new treatment. When they introduced AZT from America, it came down into Australia. So I was always seeking my medication and support from St Vincent's Hospital and I hung on for it. I, of course, was going backwards and forwards to Australia all the time and seeing them at St Vincent's whenever they wanted to see me. Then I was starting the medication, having blood tests to see where I was at and I was certainly uh, in the queue for the first medications when they arrived. On one of Bruce's visits in Sydney, his doctor suggested he trial the new medication. He said, you know, we've got this medication now from America called AZT, we'd like to start you on this. And that was fantastic because I was thinking that what am I going to do for the rest of my life? I don't want to spend the rest of it worrying about making money for the next payroll. I was sort of getting to a conclusion of wanting to do what everybody did, sort out what time I had left and plan how to get as much enjoyment out of life as I could. So I thought, OK, well, I'll try this AZT, and, and it, it really started to do something. It started to build up my immune system again, and it started to reduce the virus, and, and it was fantastic. But, of course, it was monotherapy, and monotherapy by itself is not sufficient. Monotherapy means the use of one drug in a treatment, in this case, AZT. In the beginning, AZT really did seem like the wonder drug that people had been waiting for. But this reputation quickly fell apart for a number of reasons, one of which Bruce has just mentioned. But before we get to that, I want to address some of the other problems the use of AZT was creating. The interval between AZT being found to be effective in a lab, to being tested on people, to being approved, was just over two years, which was the shortest time for a drug to be approved in history. It's understandable why it was fast-tracked, 
It was at the time the most promising looking treatment for people living with AIDS. But the approval process was not without controversy. As it was being distributed to a public in need, reports and stories started to leak about the particular difficulties this trial had suffered. Participants had been found combining their pills together with others to try to increase the odds of getting the active drug and not a placebo. By some accounts, almost half of the patients given AZT had had to receive blood transfusions during the trial to treat the damage that the drug caused in their bone marrow and immune systems. In the high doses that were initially used, AZT was toxic, in a similar way to how chemotherapy is toxic. In fact, some people believed that AZT was actually making them sicker than they had been before. Many people who took AZT in the initial high doses found the side effects of the medication were sometimes just too many and too awful to face. Here's Bruce Kilmister again. My best friend was an architect in Sydney and he was struck down with the virus and St Vincent's were just fantastic in terms of their support. We brought Ashley home to Christchurch so that when he needed 24-hour care, So back to his parents, his mother looked after him for the last few days uh, before he passed on again. The side effects of the medication, he couldn't live with at all. And despite him taking medication, it just never worked out for him. Yeah, so many friends seemed to just be happening all around you. You'd be having coffee with somebody and, and they'd say, have you heard about so-and-so? And of course then you'd realise what that meant, that they'd been infected or so-and-so was in hospital or something like that. Just, uh, just went on and on and on. Someone else who really struggled with the medication was Victoria Drake, aka Pussy Galore, a legend of the drag scene in Tamaki Makoto, and Bruce's partner. He was very well known. Um, we were both very well known within the gay community, but he was very well known. He used to play netball, a men's netball, and succeeded very well and became part of the national team, and they did tours around the islands in Australia, representing New Zealand. Quatoria, together with a group of friends, started what became known as Marae in the Sky, an apartment at the top of Newland House near the Auckland Art Gallery, Toi Otamaki. The Marae in the Sky was exceptionally important in the queer scene in the early 90s, and a whole podcast series should probably be dedicated to telling its story, so I'm not going to attempt that here. Wataria, who took on the role of matriarch and who ensured the tikanga of the whare was upheld, like a few of his flatmates, was also living with HIV. He was someone who struggled deeply with the side effects of the medication. Bruce remembers his final days. We were together 16, 17 years when he contracted HIV and Victoria was one of those people who suffered so badly from the side effects of the medication. It was just horrible to the extent that he couldn't cope at all and um, elected to not take the medication. I mean, he used to literally 
try and hold him down and force the medication into his mouth, but he was so, so ill with it that he determined that he wasn't going to spend his days living like that. Then when he was finally in hospital, for the last few days, of course, no one dies from AIDS, but they die of the opportunistic infections, and unfortunately, he acquired tuberculosis, which was so strange, I thought that was something from a century ago, and that we'd eradicated it, but here we are back in New Zealand with tuberculosis, and as I say, he had no immune system to deal with anything, so it, it took him away. We had a, a very large service at St Matthews in the city. It was significant, it was full, and, and then we took his body down to his home marae at Kafia, and his cousin, who's a gay man, uh, came to us and said, look, he'd had a mixed response from the elders, and he said, be prepared when we go on to the marae with the body, be prepared to be thrown out. That could happen, but what happened is we told his auntie stood up and we were allowed to go on. And uh, the coffin uh, lies open for three days. And the last day, when in the morning, and the, and the body is in Maori culture, it's. It, got people around it all the time so we were there for three three days and in the morning of the last day before the church service and the burial the coffin is sealed that's a very very emotional stage and then after that the church service and we then carried the body to the coffin as brothers dug the grave and they dug it twice as deep because we told he had a lot of costumes he uh, which he had buried with him. As AZT made its way into the hands of those who needed it, other reports began coming in. Reports that not only was the treatment making people sick, but after an initial period of success, it would stop working. Jane Brunning was involved in a UK trial of AZT. When I was in England, I started on the AZT trials. They had AZT in the States, but they were just starting them in the UK. And I think my CD4 was down at around about 280. And this doctor sort of said, look, there's these, it's not just a trial. And I just said, well, you know, why not? There's nothing to lose by trying. I'll try it. A quick note on CD4 counts. As the virus progresses, a person's CD4 count drops. So measuring a person's CD4 count is a way to see how their immune system is doing against HIV. What was getting people so excited about AZT was that it was raising people's CD4 cell counts. And initially they kind of, the CD4 didn't, I don't think it went up, but it stopped going down. Or maybe it went up a little bit. I think it sort of went up a little bit, but then it kind of stopped working. What Jane and her doctors had experienced was the same disappointment happening around the world. The miracle drug was working for short periods of time, a few months to a year, perhaps. But always, at some point, the drug would stop working. 
said if four counts would fall again, hope would fade. The reason? Antimicrobial resistance. You've perhaps heard of antibiotic resistance, arguably one of the biggest threats facing global public health today. It happens when the germs the drug is supposed to kill instead evolve to resist the drug. There are vast differences between the likelihoods of different viruses to mutate and develop drug resistance. Because HIV replicates rapidly and its replication cycle is prone to errors when confronted with AZT, it would very quickly mutate in a way that meant it could evade it. Now, if the trials of AZT had taken the usual length of time of 8 to 10 years, what was found out in the months following its release would have been discovered before it was rolled out. But in a situation where every month survived feels like a victory, delayed access to such a promising drug would have been akin to torture. Since their inception, the international AIDS conferences have been a place where scientists, activists, government representatives, people living with HIV and the media come together with a joint focus on advancing the HIV response. If there are ever important developments in the world of HIV and AIDS, they're talked about here. It's also where the results of eagerly anticipated scientific studies are released. The American National Institute of Health had funded an AIDS clinical trials group into combination therapy, and they were at the 1993 conference to release the results of their research. Combination therapy is when at least two drugs are used in tandem against an organism that quickly develops resistance to a drug. It had its first medical breakthrough in treatment of tuberculosis in the 50s. Many had been holding out hope that if a breakthrough were to happen in the treatment of HIV, it would be through a combination of drugs. People had been waiting for these results for a long time. The mood in the conference room was electric. Richard Mitch remembers the buzz that surrounded the next announcement. Then the other situation that I vividly remember. We had got the message about monotherapy. The big hope was for combination therapies. And the first combination that was up was double therapy, using two antiretrovirals. And these results were presented at the International AIDS Conference that was held in Berlin. And the packed theatre, there was probably about ten to 12,000 people uh, attending this presentation. It was the huge anticipated buzz of the audience and trial after trial after trial fell over. No better than monotherapy. And by the end of the day, the whole audience was as flat as a pancake, utterly depressed. Activists from Treatment Action Group, a group formed to demand better treatment outcomes for people living with HIV, jumped up and took over the stage. They were frustrated with what they perceived to be incompetent trials and dishonest presentations of the results. A tense question and answer session followed, but of course, it couldn't change the results. The much hyped and much hoped for combination therapy had failed. In 1995, the New York Times reported that complications from AIDS were the leading cause of death for adults aged 25 to 44 in the US. 
Although New Zealand still had relatively low rates with around 100 cases a year, public perception of HIV and AIDS had shifted. AIDS could no longer be reduced to a gay disease or a disease of the H's, homosexuals, heroin users, haemophiliacs and Haitians. It could affect anyone, and finding a treatment was a race against the clock, a battle that the world needed to be united in fighting. Here's Dr. Meech again. The virus only recognises our humanity. Doesn't care what colour, what creed or whatever else we want to categorise people on. So our response has to be that we only recognise our humanity. In 1995, a few new developments heralded a significant change in HIV treatment. Viral load testing was introduced, which provided a more sensitive method of assessing the response to therapy than CD4 counts. Viral load testing is still considered today to be the most accurate way to monitor the effectiveness of HIV treatment. And as you'll hear in the next episode, the introduction of this has had significant impact on the lives of people affected by HIV. More exciting still, two new classes of antiretroviral drugs were developed, non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors and protease inhibitors. Towards the end of the year, a new trial was recruited for, utilising these new drugs. Triple therapy, unlike monotherapy or combination therapy, uses, as its name suggests, a triple drug combination. Within weeks, the researchers and the participants involved started noticing promising results, unlike anything that had been seen before. Still, a decade of setbacks and disappointments meant that people were cautious. I think because of the Berlin conference, everyone was enthusiastic about the reports, but we'd learnt that it's a matter of durability, and although these are promising, can they be maintained in the longer run? The question that was coming forward was, how low can you go with suppression of viral load? How low do you have to go? So I think everyone had learnt cautious optimism from the Berlin conference. That that's good, but we need to make sure we can answer these questions. The theme of the 1996 International AIDS Conference held in Vancouver was One World, One Hope. It was here that highly active antiretroviral therapy, HEART, was announced. A triple combination treatment that would change everything. The Berlin Conference was just amazing in the way how dejected and flattened it was in response to the negative results. And then of course the door opened up a year or two later into triple studies and that's wonderful. Can we maintain it? Is it durable? Yeah, it's going on and on. What about side effects? Because those are what's stopping people taking them. Can we manage these? Can we manage different combinations? And learning to really come to rely on viral load studies and that if you drop the viral load down to undetectable and kept it there, then things would go well from that point onwards. 
now considered one of the greatest success stories of modern medicine, patients treated with heart showed a dramatic reduction in viral load, increased CD4 cells, and most excitingly, a dramatic reduction in rates of AIDS, hospitalisation and death. It was so effective that the term the Lazarus effect was being used to describe how patients were rising from the edge of death. Here's Bruce Kilmister on the difference the medication made to his life and the lives of his friends. We saw still people who you know, struggled with the side effects of the medication, people who still had health issues and couldn't quite cope. But very quickly, the treatment started to adjust the whole uh, concept of living with HIV. Now there was a concept that you could live longer. We didn't know how long, of course, and it just got longer and longer. And finally, of course, when they said a perfectly reasonable expectation of life can be assumed by people living with HIV, provided they maintain their medication and a fully suppressed virus. Here's Dr. Richard Meech on how the new developments changed the conversations he was having with patients. The important thing for me was really taking a condition that people had associated with death and dying, that the diagnosis of HIV infection was virtually a death sentence. And then gradually we were getting long-term survivors on combination therapies and I retired, some of them were out to 20 years of therapy. They were well, the viral load was suppressed. They would continue to do well. I had one patient who I was very fond of who used to come in and complain to me. You know, when you told me I had HIV, I thought, right, I'm going to spend up big and I'm going to do everything within three years that I want to do. Well, I've spent up, I've spent all my money. And here I am, sort of eight, ten years down the track. I'm perfectly well. <laughs> here, Michael shares how the treatment changed his life. My life does not feel as defined by HIV and death as it did. I guess the biggest change is it's no longer a crisis. You know, it's moved from being um, that sense of like being in, in the trenches in World War I and people dying all around you all the time to like you take your pills and run a marathon or you know go traveling or just get on with your life so that's that's the real change here's jane brunning on her experience i've been very very lucky because a lot of people who contracted it so i contracted it in 1988 i read a statistic recently whereas about in new zealand there's about one percent of people who contracted it in the 80s are still alive so i don't know why that is um, I just think it's luck. Well, I think for, you know, I remember that time, there's a lot of people, even though they were living, looked terrible from, from their drugs and then taking, you know, 13, 15 tablets a day, whereas now it's a couple of tablets a day and it's nothing. I mean, I take five tablets a day. So, you know, nothing, absolutely. I only, I only need to take them twice a day, whereas before it was three times a day. So it kind of was much more in your face in the, 
I think you felt it more because you didn't feel 100% the drug side effects. You had to take them three times a day. You had to watch when you took them. And whereas now you just kind of take the pills and you feel good. So you just get on with your life. The story of how Heart was developed is one of true collaboration between differing parties. Determined, messy, challenging, non-linear and sometimes illogical, but always, always pushing forward, motivated by hope and belief and determination that science can achieve anything. There were and still are problems, the prohibitive cost of the new medication being a major one, with poorer countries in Africa and Southeast Asia still struggling with very high numbers of new infections, and with the cost of treatment still extremely expensive, the world has a while to go yet before we can rest. But the developments you have learned about today with the beginning of a new era in HIV prevention and treatment science, which you'll learn more about in the next episode. Today in Aotearoa, HIV infection is a manageable condition rather than the death sentence it once was. In fact, people living with HIV who start treatment early can expect to live about as long as the general population. The entire field of HIV medicine, including scientists, activists, private pharmaceutical companies, governments, and especially all the millions of people living with and affected by HIV and AIDS, were instrumental in that victory. Thanks for listening to Our Forgotten Epidemic, a show about Aotearoa New Zealand's response to HIV and AIDS and some of the many brave individuals who changed the course of history. Burnett Foundation Aotearoa is proud to be able to tell part of this important story from the perspectives of some truly remarkable people. And we want to acknowledge there's so much more than we can tell in this short series. Our Forgotten Epidemic was produced by Wavelength Creative in collaboration with Burnett Foundation Aotearoa. Written and researched by Alyssa Partington, Matt Bain and myself, Jason Myers. All music composed by Alex Cox. Many of the voices you've heard in this episode are from a series of interviews conducted by Dr Cheryl Weir in 2019 for the New Zealand AIDS Foundation Oral History Project. Thanks to Pride NZ for allowing us to use portions of an interview with Bruce Kilmister. You can listen to this interview in full, alongside many others, at pridenz.co.nz. Special thanks to our test listeners, including staff living with HIV at Burnett Foundation Aotearoa, Gareth Watkins, the Lesbian and Gay Archives of New Zealand, and pridenz.co.nz. Special thanks also goes to Peter Davis for his excellent book, Intimate Details and Vital Statistics, AIDS, Sexuality and the Social Order in New Zealand. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Our Forgotten Epidemic, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Dr Jason Myers. Join me in the next episode of Our Forgotten Epidemic.